Nighttime on Still Waters. This is NB506812, narrow casting into the night from somewhere on Britain's waterways. Twenty sixth of October, Tuesday. Gloaming, civil twilight. The ash in the south field is losing its denseness, filigree silhouette like Victorian cut paper artwork. Westerly wind, buoyant and roguish. And all at once, hundreds of leaves lift and rise up, caught on the bandit wind. Slowly, transfiguring into rooks and jackdaws, that take wing, and beat strong across the crowing sky. This is the narrowboat Erica, narrow casting to you on a stormy October night, canal side. Earlier, the night was studded with stars. Slowly and silently, tilting on their spiralling seasonal journeys overhead. But now the clouds are swept in and the rain has come, in drumming impatience. But it's warm and dry here, beside the stove, and the kettle is hot, and I'm so pleased you came. Come inside for a while, make yourself comfortable. It's been a typical October weather kind of week, at least typical as far as my expectations and experience goes. Tiggerish winds, bouncy and warm and playful, bowling in across the levels to the west of us, tripping and tumbling over the hedges and the copse. And the barometer has been in constant motion, swinging high and then low, so much so that I see myself taking the role of Admiral Boom in Mary Poppins, tapping the weather glass and delivering dire prognostications of heavy weather ahead as the barometer needle clambers up and down the isobars as they pass over our heads. And the skies have alternated between sun-chased towering crags ripping up into the updrafts and thermals and those heavy, grey, concrete skies. And when the sun breaks through, it's sleepily warm. And when the rains come, it's torrential. It's the type of weather that's difficult not to feel heroic in, fully alive, vital to stand high on a hilltop and feel the energy of being. And like rooks and jackdaws, cast the shapes of your life big and large and untrammeled on the painting of this earth. Tennyson, wind frayed and ragged on the downs high above Freshwater Bay. Dylan Thomas, 
striding seven-league boots over the Gower Peninsula. R.S. Thomas, tattered black Macintosh whipping his legs, blasted by the Atlantic winds on the Hlyn Peninsula. The energy of weather can be infectious. It reminds you that you are part of and belong to something much, much bigger. And Wednesday and Thursday nights the rain fell and the wind was fierce, roaring like foaming ocean breakers in the trees next to us. And then dozily half-waking in the night to the rattle and drum of the rain on the cabin roof and the creak of mooring rope and fender. From time to time the gentle movement of the boat resisting the playful invitation of the wind to come and join it on its travels. At times like these, the Erica seems most to take on a persona of being alive. The imperceptible and not-so-imperceptible clicks and creaks and pops and groans. And I can understand why, when we moved from boat to the house, Mum felt that it was all so hollow and dead. And despite the big winds, most of the trees and shrubs here have been holding on to their leaves still, with perhaps the exception of the hawthorn. And half-term has meant that there's been a lot of activity on the canal, both on the towpath and the water. And this week, Donna decked out the bow of the Erica with Halloween paper lanterns and a glowing spider in its web and a strange-looking ghoul type of thing that's been wearing a tattered nighty. Penny's very unimpressed with it as it fell on her head when I tried to put it up. We don't really do Halloween, but one of her patients is incredibly excited about it. About any special day, really, and so Donna wanted to take some pictures of it to show him. It's that point of contact that makes the difference in life. And a couple of other boats here are also sporting pumpkins and lights tonight. There's been some worrying news. Avian flu has been detected in Stratford, a few miles down the canal from us. And a couple of signets there have been tested positive for it. Fortunately, swans are territorial in nature and, where possible, try to minimise contact with other family groups and units. And so, hopefully, fingers crossed, our little family will remain comparatively safe and there's also a lot of food still available to forage, so the swan and duck communities have little close interaction together, as opposed to when the winter bites and food is more difficult to find, and they tend to group and forage and feed together. I've not managed to see if Cyril, the juvenile, has successfully flown yet, and on Wednesday Donna and I were watching as the two parents flew low, tightly circling the moorings. And I'm not sure if it was to encourage little Cyril to join them, but they soon returned, gliding low, 
back onto the water. And Cyril makes me laugh, effortlessly switching vocal registers from the baby cheep cheep to the full-blown adult hiss. Like an adolescent boy whose voice is in the process of breaking. And the coot is definitely back, and I desperately want to feed it, but we've been requested not to, to avoid attracting outside bird communities, and again to keep that close contact to the minimum. Doesn't really need food, there's plenty enough here for it. But it's just that human urge to celebrate a return of an old friend, and to reconnect and however one-sided that might be. Thank you to everybody who contacted me on social media and through email this week. It's lovely hearing from you. And please do, the contact details are below in the programme notes. Hello to Arlene in Seattle. I see that the weather there is pretty ferocious and I hope you're okay and Darlene was telling me about her plans for a canal holiday over here in the UK next summer well, sounds really exciting hello also to Carol Knight Ennis and thank you as ever for always commenting and making contact uh, Tony got back in contact with me from last week's episode, and so did Dad as well, about the pronunciation of fungi or fungi. And Tony was trained in arboriculture and mentioned the different ways of pronouncing Latin and medical Latin and agricultural Latin and botanical Latin. And I found this also with Greek a number of different ways and the American ways and the European ways and and I guess that's the whole nature of language how it changes and different groups use it in different ways and that's what makes language so exciting so inventive and creative and also so useful and thank you also to Alistair another old friend of mine for those amazing photographs, also of fungi, and those foxes and red squirrels and that most incredible picture of a field mouse on a teasel head. Oh, they're wonderful. Thank you, Alistair. Halloween smells of swede and leaf mulch, damp earth and wood smoke, molten candle wax, and sometimes the rasp of evenings entangled in fog, and that tang of sulphur from a struck match. But, above all, it's always the smell of cut swede. And even now, Slicing into the unyielding solidity of a swede and catching the scent of its sharp sweetness sends me cartwheeling back to my boyhood with Mum and Wendy at the kitchen counter preparing a Halloween swede head. Even though 
just after school, and tumbling down Coniston Road that climbed its way up the hill to where all the schools were located, the outside world would be dimming, and the sloping ascent of the garden slowly filling with darkness, until only the concrete steps up to the lawn and the sprawling lavender bush, tousle-haired and filled with bee-song and perfume, could be seen ghostly through our reflected faces. Carving out a sweet head takes strong hands and a sharp knife, and I think I can recall some half-hearted stabs, literally, had it. But the lion's share was mum's, and I think Wendy possibly took over when she got a little bit older. And with every gouging scrape of that pale woody flesh and the pine-coloured shavings came that scent of outside fields of freshly turned earth and fresh air. And the strange thing is, I intensely disliked Swede when I was at that age. Mum used to mix it with butter and pepper and a sprinkle of fresh herbs, and it would sit lurking, glowering on the edge of my plate, sullen, as if it knew that I had used its skin for a head to light up the Halloween night with a full flickering glow. Like a lot of food that I did not like then, I can't quite understand what I didn't like about it. The carved swede head with its guttering candlelit eyes was our only marker of Halloween. Its significance was small and its impact on us perhaps even smaller, and yet, and yet, I can still vividly recall the smell of that swede, its texture, the chipping and the hacking, the ritual of lighting the stub of a candle, the zip and roar of the swan vesta match striking along the sandpaper of the bright yellow box that smelt of wood and phosphorus and chemicals and then the procession down the path from the back door to the front gate, the reverent placing of it on the gatepost, careful to ensure that the glowing face was pointing down toward the traffic, passing us below, and then the standing, watching the pale flicker of flame-light within the jagged gash of eyes and mouth, and then the regular trips to the window, peeking between curtains, first in the front room, then later from my bedroom airy high on the roof, to check for its faint and flickering glimmer. And, Mum, it's gone out again. As far as I remember, we were the only house on the road that held this little ritual. It was only much later that one or children would come to the front door dressed in costumes asking for treats, and by that time I had long grown up and had little need of Halloween and sweet heads. And I had cultivated a scandalised indignation of this embracing of naive superstition, 
and the commercialization that was a betrayal of the memory of the Swede heads of my childhood. And if there were any inconsistencies in my thinking, I failed to recognize or acknowledge it. I was fully aware of pumpkins and their connection with Halloween, but never really thought to consider why we had a Swede rather than a pumpkin, other than the fact that I don't think I ever saw one until I was in my late teens. And I remember then being so struck by how perfectly pumpkiny they looked, as if they were from a Disney stage prop made of fiberglass or plastic rather than real vegetable. And I somehow liked the rude roughness of the Swede head. It felt more appropriate to the occasion, as wild as ivy and as untamed as brambles, and they seemed to belong to a time before crepe paper and plastic spiders. And the monster mash may provide a fitting soundtrack for precision-cut pumpkins, but Swede heads evoked a rougher kind of music, no matter how unsettling was their original intention. For the most part, I'm not even really sure whether I thought much about what the Swede head represented, beside it being faintly unnerving, and yet also rather homely at the same time. It was a little occasion that we as a family did, marking some hidden passage of the year, a diverting pit stop on the race towards fireworks night, and then on to the last lap for Christmas. And it was not that I was unaware of death and the stories of ghosts and witches that attended Halloween. By that time I'd lost both my grandfathers. But that sort of death and loss seemed to have little part in the death that we hailed and hallooed with childlike bravado on Halloween. Their deaths had occurred off stage, attended by sombre words spoken in voices strangely lowered, my only tangible experience of it. And in the egocentric cosmos of my boyhood, I was largely untouched, and I just wanted the laughter to return, and the hushed voices to be once more filled with warmth and smiles and life. I do remember once, though, sitting squat-like on the big rock that made an island in our pond at the top of the garden. Large rocks are good places for thinking, and the top of the garden was always where I went to let my mind and imagination run free. And I suppose I must have been around perhaps nine or ten. And I remember trying to remember what my world was like before I had known about the existence of death. But I could never remember at time. At least, I could never remember what the world without death was like. And it perplexed me. And I wondered what I had done to bring such a thing into the world. It was not that I was thought that I had brought death into the world, but I had brought it into my world, and I had little idea of how ancient 
that kind of response to death was. Its presence due to some moral failure. But all this was far removed from the concepts of life and death of my Halloweens. They were populated with dancing, jangle-boned, grinning skeletons made of cardboard and tracing paper, with shiny brass paper fasteners for joints, and rotund, blundering mummies coming unwound as they walked with their arms outstretched, and crazy, flittering bats with pointy teeth and ears, and Elizabethan ghosts sporting Van Dyke beards and carrying their heads under their armpits. My nights did contain monsters and strange, awful shadows, but these had nothing to do with my Halloween and that little Swede head glowing faintly on the gatepost, the candle burning down inside it, the underside of its lid, silky black with soot and the scent of cooked Swede. This was a night of boldness and swagger. And that human-like thing that would follow me upstairs, footstep for footstep, that I knew would be there if I but dared turn round, and, oh, don't look back, just don't look back. And how often has that motif surfaced in the stories of old? And it was my silent shadow along the landing until I had flung myself onto the sanctuary of my bed, that was banished at least for one night, Halloween. And on Halloween, lit by that gashed grimace of a Swede-head lantern smile, we could be brave and reckless, staring into that dark ocean of the emotions and fears and pain of experiences that had yet to greet us, and therefore for which we had no measure. And so we began to negotiate this new world of primitive fears that lurked at the edge of our hearts and the corners of our rooms with a bravery of innocence and unknowing. And in this too, dressing gown loosely hanging from my shoulders as I stood at my bedroom window, toes hot and swollen and itchy with their chillblains, from autumn to spring always chillblains, peering out for that faint blush of light in the darkness. We began to tread the foothills of a world that, even then, I was waiting at the threshold of my adolescence. I was being introduced to death and loss, and the true meaning of the empty seat at the table and the polished empty ashtray on the mantelpiece below the flying ducks on the wall that still smelt of the lingering rich and exotic aromas of Grampy's cigar, of the big unknowables that we as humans have always struggled with, post-mortem and the finite journey of life. And I am so grateful that that introduction was so gentle, edging me slowly toward the realities of a life of which I was aware but 
of which also I had very little understanding. But now that little boy following mum and dad and Wendy down the garden path with the flickering light of a swede head has long since gone. And rightly so. But perhaps tonight if we look closely we'll find another small boy in toothpaste-striped pyjamas staring down from an upstairs window to see if he can catch a glimpse of his own special fragile light glowing in that great darkness that he is learning to face. And maybe we might hear, Mum, Dad, the candle's gone out again. And for a short while, before he returns to his bed, he stays at the window, watching his lamp shine in a universe of night. Kai to fos ente scotia fine eye, kai he scotia altu u catalaban. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness cannot contain it. And so I'm grateful for our little family ritual of the Swede head on the gatepost. And for a mum and dad who would be there to relight the spluttering candles of my childhood so that I could see that my light can shine out and meet the darkness that I might face. Yes, Halloween smells of swede and hot candle wax, and may it forever do so. And tonight we sail on those candle lights of our childhoods and of our children's childhoods. And this is the Narrowboat Erica signing off for the night. Sleep well. Good night. Temperature outside 5.1 degrees. Inside 26 degrees. Humidity 79%. Dew point 4.9 degrees. Wind direction southwest. Wind strength. Seven miles per hour. Barometric pressure nine hundred and ninety eight point three rising. Cloud cover one hundred per cent. Cloud ceiling three hundred feet. Precipitation seven. Point eleven millimeters. Moon phase twenty nine point two per cent. Waning crescent. Day length nine hours forty three minutes. Sunset seventeen forty one.
Skycasting, 7 o'clock.